Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Let's get started. We have some really interesting stuff to cover. Rather than talk about oil and gas pricing, I'm going to talk about energy in a very fundamental way. I don't think oil pricing changed all that much. I don't think gas pricing has changed all that much. It's just kind of more of the same. But I want to make a distinction that I think will be helpful in trying to figure out what to do with not just energy stocks, but with all stocks. Energy, there are two kinds of things that happen from energy. One is transportation. And that, of course, is cars, trucks, airplanes. And uh, transportation fuels are almost oil, oil based. The other part of energy is basically power. And in power, I would include heating our home, either generating power, providing air conditioning in the summer, heating oil, propane, heat pumps you know, using electricity. Now, where is impact on our economy? I think if you add both those sectors together, I'm going to guess in terms of percentage of GNP, I, I haven't seen any reliable numbers recently, but I think it's somewhere in the 12 to 13% of our economy. We just had a 9% inflation number. What's going on there? Well, obviously, one of the things that goes in the CPI is rental housing. Price of used cars goes in there. Price of food staples goes in there. One of the things that goes in there, I believe, is utility bills. And obviously, one of the things that goes in there is transportation fuels. There is no question. Well, it's very likely. I shouldn't say no question. It's very likely that the component that come from transportation fuels and from providing electricity and heating homes and whatnot are on the decline. Why is that the case? Well, you know, Ukraine war has happened, it's still going on. It kind of looks like a stalemate. Oil is going to move from Russia. It may be refined in India or China rather than in Rotterdam or someplace in Europe. But it is moving. It, it's going to continue to move. The world, at this point, I don't think is short oil. As far as natural gas into Europe, great uncertainty, especially in Germany, seems to be most dependent on gas from Russia. But, you know, real strides have been made to move LNG in, to burn coal, you know, to basically do more wind, do more solar. In time, Germany and the rest of Europe will never be as dependent on Russian gas as they have been. So that'll, that'll work out over time. Doesn't take longer to work out than actually moving Russian oil to India or China, but it will happen in time. Recession, you know, people say, well, what is, why is the price of oil uh, recession risk? Well, Recession risk because it affects oil is on a worldwide basis. In the United States, for 
transport and whatnot or power, we probably use oil and gas combined and the coal on a worldwide basis. We probably use, I don't know, 15, 16% of all the energy use in, in the world. I think there are now something like 6 billion people in the world or something like that, 6 or 7 billion people. We're only 320 million. We, we use more than our share. But the same trends that are <clears throat> happen in a recession, recession is not just in the U.S. It's going to be on a worldwide basis. Will there be less energy consumed because of the recession? Somewhat less. I think it's more of a, a disruption of supply that caused oil prices to get pretty high, gas prices to get high, and, and LNG prices to get very high. I, I think that's going to pass. I don't know agriculture. We've begun to do some work on soybean oil into making renewable diesel and whatnot. So I guess, I've, I guess we've learned something about soybeans and where they're grown and whatnot. But I don't know that much about agriculture. But I do think that, you know, higher food prices on a worldwide basis because of the disruption in the Ukraine are likely. But, but you know, I again, I think that's manageable. We spent that whole period from 08 through pre-pandemic with the Fed and other central banks trying to not have a deflation. They, they wanted to have at least one and a half or two percent inflation. Now they're stuck with much higher inflation. Is it possible to get back to 2%? It would seem kind of unlikely, but is it, is it likely that we'll have eight or 9% CPI inflation, you know, in October and next January? I just think that's extremely unlikely. So the idea that we'll have to have a steep recession like we had in 08. In 08, we had the steepest recession that we had the 30s it wasn't really stimulated by the Federal Reserve to slow down inflation or anything. It was our capital markets came completely unglued because we had this huge bubble created real estate and we took a lot of paper that was rated, you know, double A or triple A and, and it became worthless because we had just overdone it in the mortgage market. It's really an inflation of assets. It was an inflation of residential real estate. And the interesting thing is it mostly was stimulated in the U.S., a communist or a centrally planned economy saying, you know, this was generated by the U.S. mishandling their capital markets. You know, hard, hard, to, hard to disagree with that. It took a long time to try to get inflation back, so it was doing at least 2%. Clearly, the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve should have acted 12 months prior to when they acted. They just were way too slow. And that probably contributed to the situation we have now. In the pandemic, you know, the quantitative easing, increasing the Fed balance sheet, putting more money in circulation, in effect, became the way to try to get the economy to grow, get inflation up to 2%. So it kind of started happening in 09, 2010. The Fed balance sheet was maybe a trillion and a half dollars, you know, before the 08 recession. You know, they built up to around four and a half trillion. They got it down to four. And then COVID happened. And it looked like we're going to have a worldwide lockdown. The Fed, you know, which is what a central bank should do or central banks in general, 
said, we will keep this from getting worse by basically pumping all this money into the economy by increasing the Fed balance sheet. So they took the Fed balance sheet from four trillion up to nine. You know, one of they they finally did produce some some consumer price and wholesale price inflation. What they did do is huge inflation in asset value. So the homes we live in our own, they became worth a lot more money. The stock market became worth a lot more money. And we're still working through that. Now, there's all this focus on does the Fed funds rate go up 75 basis points later this week, or should it go up a full 100 basis points? All this focus on the Fed funds rate, it's important. I mean, it's important as a signal. It's important because when you borrow money, you know, it's going to cost, you know, cost more to pay interest. But what about the Fed balance sheet? In December, they said that if they put it in the full rundown, because what rundown means is the treasury securities and mortgage securities, it's about one-third mortgage securities, two-thirds treasuries. As they mature, you don't reinvest them. They said it would go down by $90 billion a month. $90 billion times 12 is almost a trillion a year. So in four or five years, out of Fed, you know, I guess based on concerns about the impact of that, not only on our economy, but on the worldwide capital market, has decided that they're only going to go down $30 billion a month. I do not believe that we will get back to where valuation should be, you know, in a normalized state until they decide to put it full rundown and then we see what happens. Now, they may never decide to do that because no one knows the impact of taking the largest economy in the world and taking, you know, $5 trillion out of it over a, you know, four or five year period. I think it's totally irresponsible to not do it, but that doesn't mean to say they're going to do it. They have a dual mandate. One is employment and one is price stability. They may decide, even though the job number for June was very strong, over 300,000, if they start to get negative job numbers or very small ads, they may decide that they don't want to take a chance on having the balance sheet go into full runoff. So it's hard to know how to think about value. One thing that's for sure is that you want to own things, or the things you own, you want to make sure they're not dependent on raising equity. You know, whatever the growth they have can be paid for by cash flow, and they're not going to run their debt up. And please go to all the holdings you have Look at the 10 Qs and have a judgment that they are kind of bulletproof and, and no matter what happens in the economy. Because if the stock goes down, you don't sell it, and then there's a recovery, no harm. If you own shares of a company that's using much more cash flow generating, and they have to raise money or they have to borrow more, first of all, you can lose the whole value of your investment, or it can be diluted by having to sell stock when the stock is uh, low. So... Be sure that you're paying attention to owning things that have generate more cash than they use and whatnot. And that that is very, very important. Now, as you know, for the people who listen every Wednesday or most Wednesdays, Mike and I are focused in on the large tech stocks. 
Why are we that? Well, we think that they have franchises that they can defend, most, whatever you want to call them. Also, they generate a great deal of cash flow. So we talk about Apple, we talk about Microsoft. We're kind of, you know, have have a kind of interest in Tesla because it generates more free cash flow. It has a better balance sheet than General Motors or Ford does. So that's definitely where we're focusing. Now, in the second quarter of this year, a bunch of stuff has happened or this year to date. The consumers, including high-end consumers, you can say, well, what's able to pay consumers or consumers with lower income to lower net worth, you know, faced with having to pay more for gasoline, more for their utility bills, are, are going to curtail their spending, obviously. But if you take, okay, so there's that sector of the economy. But if you take the economy where, frankly, higher gasoline bills aren't that much of an impact or higher utility bills. However, when the stock market goes down 25%, you have a wealth effect and they can defer spending. So, for example, let's take Amazon. Amazon is just has customers are generally going to be in the higher quartiles of their business to slow down. Let's take Apple. Is it the case that people will race out to get the next iPhone and they're feeling like their stock portfolio is down 25%, maybe they just won't spend as much money. So here's a very strong company, Amazon, a very strong, very strong company, Apple, going to be impacted by these things. In addition to that, you have China, which is the, well, tied with India for the most populous country with very contagious variants. You know, China, um, trying to beat these variants with lockdowns, it, it's kind of working, I guess, but, you know, it, it's not clear. Now, they have as a party, I mean, the Communist Party has a huge amount to say about how their economy is, is organized and run and regulated and whatnot. They can't be having any growth, no matter what the statistics they put out. How can that happen? Well, that's going to have an impact on Apple because everything Apple makes or Bells, a high portion of it is made in China. Has it been impact on Tesla? They have four factories now. They have the original factory in California. They have one in Shanghai. They have one in Texas, which is just getting started. One in, in Germany, in Berlin, which is just getting started. To the extent that lockdowns hurt them in Shanghai, you know, they've already announced they didn't sell as many cars in the second quarter as they did in the first quarter. That's going to have an impact on their second quarter. Apple is bound to have an impact. Amazon already, Amazon's already said when they announced their first quarter earnings that they're going to have a very weak second quarter that they overexpanded too much. So no matter how, how good Amazon Web Services is, you know, the rest of Amazon, the e-commerce part of Amazon is, you know, is struggling a bit. Standbys, you know, where Mike and Jason made a lot of money in the video. Well, you know, the chip demand is, is having an impact now. The thing to do clearly you're adding positions that add them in companies like this, but the time to add them might be, you know, second half August right now, wait and see how the second quarter looks. And if you're making an investment that you plan to hold half a decade or a decade, the price you get in at is very important. There, I chewed through 20 minutes. Sorry to be so long-winded, but with that, I'm going to ask Mike to fill in any any additions or, or deletions or things where 
he thinks I've overemphasized something about the investment scene that he disagrees with. Over to you, Mike. Nothing said there that I disagree with, but I do think that there's a big question mark on consumer spending that nobody really has the answer to. There's a lot of things that line up to say that, especially the marginal consumer is going to be spending less as a result of this inflation. So we just don't know how that's going to trickle out in different industries. It'll be different things and kind of back to some of this B2B software stuff is a little bit more, we think it'll be a little bit more resilient in that case. But there are certainly are some categories that will do just fine through this. And maybe, maybe we're overestimating the downside. There's no really perfect way to, to sort through that. The, the thing is, is that last year's comparisons are all going to be inflated because there was plenty of excess money in the system. So I think that's all I'd add. So Mike, if you and Jason were committing to a new stock this week, what would it be? Oh, that's a good question. While he collects his thinking on that, I pass to Mike and Jason and also to Brian and John Jeff Koshin, a company that I was looking at for Yorktown reasons, which is a big refiner, Marathon, and the other big refiner, and, and really further along in terms of renewable fuels and whatnot as Valero. These companies are huge, and they're trading like it five times free cash flow. And I've been spending more time looking at them, obviously, with, you know, 40 going on, 50 years of experience investing in energy. Got a real feel for these companies. I finally kind of called it off. I mean, I passed word to Mike and I passed word on to Brian Ars and call him and John that probably, you know, the thing to do again is to look at their second quarter results because the refining margin have been so huge that both Marathon and Valero will in the second quarter probably make more money in the second quarter than they make in both years. But that doesn't necessarily translate into a sustainable business. Part of what happened when Russia got sanctioned, Russia makes a lot of distillate. So a lot of the, you, the difference between what it's called the crack spread, what you get for the products is compared to what you paid for the crew just blew out and everyone in the refining business made a ton of money. And so maybe I'll rephrase the question to Mike, not what would you buy this week, but of the things you're running into and you're looking under every rock, what couple of companies or sectors or whatnot would be ones where you would be spending more time on? Maybe that's a better way to better way to characterize it. And the two refiners, I mean, I'll continue to spend time on, but at the moment, I, you know, I, I, I'm kind of wary and would want to at least see how good the second quarter results really are. But back over to you, Mike. So there's two, two areas we've been spending the most amount of time on. I, I'd say for all of our portfolio and everything that's on our watch list, we've done new valuations because we're, we're looking at this as a new normal. We have new discount rates, we have new projections. So we've gone through the whole portfolio. The new stuff we're looking at, as discussed, we've stayed focused on B2B software, looking for cheap opportunities there. The second area is a theme that we called the metals powered economy. And this is 
essentially has to do with energy transition and the shift to metals powered infrastructure, whether that's batteries for your electric cars, et cetera. So, you know, one of the things we established relatively early on last year, at the very least, is that we were in the very early innings and that market for electric vehicles was at the peak of inflated expectations, if you will. So under that theme, we then started looking at, well, what are the companies that people aren't thinking are going to do well that may end up doing just fine nonetheless? And that unearthed a couple things. One actually would be Marathon because that's a, again, a traditional business that nobody seems to want to own that is putting out a lot of cash flow. And the question is, is how quickly do we transition off of, off of cars? What is the percentage of vehicles or miles driven increase for electric versus gas? So that, that would be one that would fall under that category. Another would be some of the parts manufacturers that supply some of the traditional automakers. Allison Transmission is one that we look at that is super cheap on a free cash flow basis, buying in stock pretty aggressively. And then the flip side of this is the lithium market, which is, I'm, I'm nowhere near an expert in lithium, but we're finding that our analysis does not line up super well with most of the analysts. And either that means we're wrong or those analysts are wrong. And we're not totally sure which is the case. So we've been spending a lot of time on that. Albemarle, as Hunt has mentioned in the past, is a really good resource for information. But there's also a handful of Chinese lithium miners that are worth spending time on as well. So maybe that gives you a, a, a decent idea as to what we've been spending time on. Now, I think right at the present time, based on the work Mike and Jason do, and, and uh, you know, I'm able to split off from Yorktown looking on energy stuff. Uh, you know, I own. And have owned Google, Amazon, very happy with those positions on the area of entertainment delivery, you know, Netflix and Brian and John have owned for a long time and been very pleased with Charter, which is your cable. Uh, I have one that, that I've guessed, which more than half the cash flow cable, but very much into content. Mike and Jason spent a bunch of time on this which has the potential to kind of do a double jump on the other people who are providing that kind of service, but pretty, pretty speculative too, and probably doesn't qualify as a company that, you know, is immune from having to raise money. It's not quite the opposite. So in this environment, that is a risk, you know, in, in, in 08, from about October on, as Lehman failed and whatnot, capital markets just closed. I mean, you couldn't raise money for anything. You had, you know, the repo market, which is an overnight market. You had people pulling out of the repo market because they were too spooked. And then, of course, the central bank, that other central bank that just stepped in. So I was reminded, Mike, this morning, I became all enamored of Intel. You know, could it be a turnaround like Microsoft? And Mike kept reminding me, he said, look, Hunt, in the chip business, even in pretty specialized, expensive chips, it is inevitable that chip companies will put in enough capacity so the supply of chips will be more than demand, and the cost is going to come down. 
I mean, Mike and I were talking this morning and I said, well, now what about NVIDIA, ADM? And of course, both those companies, especially NVIDIA, has a great balance sheet. One of the things that someone like NVIDIA will do is they book space with Taiwan Semiconductor and they have to use the space. So they'll make the chips and they'll just put them in inventory. And this is the worst thing in the world, I suppose. And especially, you know, the reason you want to own something that has a strong balance sheet. So, you know, you don't have to get financing for that. But with that, why don't we have my clothes on how the very high-end kind of proprietary chip manufacturers like NVIDIA, ADM and whatnot are going to cope with the possibility of having booked too much, too much capacity with Taiwan Semiconductor or Samsung. Over to you, Mike, and then we'll use that to close. Sounds good. So this is actually an interesting topic because there's two different approaches that fabulous semiconductor companies play in order to get their chips made. The approach that NVIDIA and some others take is that you play Samsung and Taiwan Semiconductor off of each other in order to get best pricing. It's a pretty good strategy and has been a pretty good strategy until relatively recently as Taiwan Semiconductor became far more reliable and more advanced in their manufacturing capability. AMD, on the other hand, has had a long-term relationship with Taiwan Semiconductor as a sole supplier. So the way that's played out is AMD actually gets a better deal from and from Taiwan Semiconductor in that they don't have to pre-purchase their production capacity. NVIDIA, on the other hand, has had to pre-purchase their pr production capacity. And as Hunt mentioned, it doesn't matter that much because they have a plenty strong balance sheet and that they're able to do that. And the strategy works out, well, ultimately should work out fairly well if Samsung and others are eventually able to produce at the leading edge. If Taiwan Semiconductor is the only one that can produce at the leading edge, then maybe that changes the scenario. Both NVIDIA and AMD are going to face pressures on the consumer side of their markets, specifically the crypto mining hobbyists that are using both AMD and NVIDIA cards. For AMD, they're doing a great job of taking away market share, especially among personal computers, less so in the business world. But for home workstations, they're doing a fantastic job of taking away market share. The downside is, is both of those markets are uh, going to be weaker this year than they were last year and likely significantly weaker. So in the short term, I think both companies are going to hit some bumps in the road. In the long term, we still like what both of them are doing. We've never held a position in AMD before, but AMD has made a lot of progress with their enterprise products as well. Good. I know we have some listeners on the phone that are in really warm temperatures. I mean, the people I talked to in Texas have endured 30 days more of 100 degrees. We've done great here in the Northeast, but it is a little warmer today. It's warmer tomorrow. Everyone stay well and stay healthy. And remember, uh, one of the best possible things you can do is get outside. One of the best possible things you can do when you get outside is go sailing. So, that's a very strong recommendation. Otherwise, we'll be on again next Thanks. Take care.
Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.